Before we start, a warning that domestic abuse and violence will be discussed in this episode. If you need help, you can contact Women's Aid on 1800 341 900 or Men's Aid on 01554 381. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Gráinne A, and this week, what can Ireland do to become a safer place for women? In the wake of Ashling Murphy's killing, there was an outpouring of grief from a nation trying to understand how a tragedy like this could happen. Vigils were held, minute silences were observed, and some women might have thought twice about going for their evening run that week. In the days that followed, there was a lot of reflection and anger over the different ways that women in Ireland feel unsafe or unequal in their day-to-day lives. When the doll returned from the Christmas break, it was dominated by statements from TDs, particularly female TDs, talking about policy actions that could be taken to make the country safer. As it happens, the latest cycle of the Good Information Project has been spending the past few weeks looking at women's place in society. Michelle Hennessy, the co-presenter of this podcast, examined issues such as why female politicians get more online abuse than male ones, and reported that just 23% of people believe women and men are treated equally in the home in Ireland. The Good Information team also looked at the gender pay gap, obstacles faced by women pursuing careers in academia and in healthcare, and how difficulties in accessing childcare disproportionately affects women. So let's talk about these issues in more depth. How safe are women in day-to-day life in Ireland? Have things improved or gotten worse in the last few years? And what can practically be done to make public and private spaces safer in Ireland? Joining me on the podcast today to discuss this is Orla O'Connor, Director of the National Women's Council of Ireland. Orla, in the last 10 years that you've been in charge of the National Women's Council, has Ireland become a safer place for women? Hi, Gráinne. I think that's very hard to say, um, whether it's become a safer place. I mean, the first reason probably is because we don't have official data. So it's very hard to measure progress in terms of tackling violence against women. So there is no annual data on domestic violence, for example, or sexual violence or all the forms of violence against women. And it's one of our biggest problems um, because if we can't measure it, we, we can't answer that question. We don't actually know how we are doing. Now, what we do know is, you know, there are certainly we're seeing more women reporting. And again, we don't know, is it more women reporting or is it more incidences of domestic and sexual violence? But there is an increase of calls to our frontline services. And there's an, an increase in calls as well to both the guards and an increase of incidences as well. So we're seeing an increase, but it's very hard to know what that exactly reflects. What is the best way to measure how well we're doing? Well, I think there's lots of different parts to how we measure progress, because, you know, ideally what you want to see is less incidences. But certainly we know we have a real problem in Ireland with regard to reporting because of domestic violence. Sexual violence is often surrounded by, you know, surrounded by stigma. It's very hard for people to report. So we know we have a significant level of underreporting. Um, so in terms of measuring progress, yes, that's that's part of it. But we also measure progress as well, I think, in terms of, you know, the levels, for example, of sexual harassment in society, how safe women feel. So, for example, I mean, one source of evidence is uh, which is, you know, is out of date, but it's the one that's most used is the EU Fundamental Rights Agency. And they did a survey in 2014 and they found that in Ireland in particular, women were 
afraid to go to certain places, you know, afraid to walk in certain areas. And that was much that sort of fear of going, uh, of walking in places, of just being present in spaces was higher in Ireland than it was in other European countries. So our our feeling and, and our our sense of threat and our sense of fear is also an important, I think, measure. We want a society where women are, feel, you know, free to go where they want to go and to be in the places that they want to be and not limited by a fear of, of violence. The type of incidents that women will probably have experienced that make them feel unsafe include catcalling, gendered abuse online and walking along dark roads or paths. But domestic violence is probably the most overarching issue when it comes to violence against women. Do we give violence outside of the home undue attention when we should be focusing on domestic abuse more? Well, I mean, I think the important thing is that we talk about all forms of violence. And yes, like we've clearly seen, and particularly, I think, in in terms of COVID, we've seen the prevalence of domestic violence. And it is an epidemic. And I think, you know, it absolutely has to be called that. And we certainly don't give domestic violence enough attention and domestic abuse. We are seeing some positive changes in relation to how we regard domestic violence and abuse. So, for example, the introduction of the legislation on coercive control was a really significant point because it showed that we're now understanding domestic violence and domestic abuse in the wider context. So it's not solely about physical violence, it's about all forms, psychological, emotional abuse. And that's really critical because we know that that's so key in terms of a woman's experience of domestic abuse. So that's, you know, that's certainly progress. But I I think the issue in relation to, to domestic violence, but I think, you know, for all forms is about the sort of the hidden nature. It's also about the the difficulty for reporting, the difficulty for talking about the experience, because it still is quite a secret, hidden, you know, hidden experience for so many women. And we're going to talk more about domestic violence in a minute, but let's focus on incidents outside the home that women may have encountered. As was the case for domestic abuse, did gendered online abuse become more frequent during the pandemic? Um, From our, and it would be in the Women's Council, you know, from from women, you know, talking to us, from women contacting us. Online abuse has been increasing over the past number of years, whether it's increased more in the pandemic as more people were online. That would seem to be the case, although, again, we don't know that. But certainly what we do know from from our work with women and with our 190 members is that women talk about the experience of online abuse and harassment and the fear of it as of being a real deterrent for women going forward, for example, for leadership positions, young women going forward, just, you know, if, if it's positions within school or within colleges, the fear of online abuse is having and, and the experience of it is having a really negative impact in terms of women's participation and particularly women's participation in leadership. And certainly, you know, in the National Women's Council and from our members, there really is a big call for much more obligations to be put on our social media companies in terms of dealing and responding to the abuse and making sure that it's not happening in the first place. How exactly does the government combat something like that? Well, I think in in a few different ways. So a really important piece that's going to be happening in the next few months is the government is going to be launching its new strategy to combat gender-based violence, domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. And this strategy is going to be, and it's it's an important piece 
Um, it's going to be in line with what's called the Istanbul Convention. This is a convention of the European Council that was signed by the Irish government in 2019. So there is, you know, clear, there's a clear framework. And, with, and within that, it's really important that within that strategy, that there are actions and measures for how we combat online abuse, such as the things I've spoken about in terms of looking at legislation that obliges social media companies to, to work much harder on this, to work more quickly in terms of responding, and also to put in place more measures to, to prevent it in the first place. And also, I think as well within the strategy, we also need to look at the particular forms of online abuse and how that can also be tackled in terms of, and it's part of what we're talking about in terms of creating this zero tolerance culture in our society. And I think one of the key things here is that we need to see violence against women within a continuum. And that starts from that, you know, street harassment, catcalling, and we, we need to tackle it at that level and not wait until it gets more serious. And right now we're not doing that. Our legislation on harassment is, is quite weak. It more refers to patterns of behavior. So those that type of harassment that we're talking about on the street, it doesn't really come under any particular legislation. And the guards don't have a lot of powers around it either. So we need to look at that in a much more serious way. And we're hoping to see that in the government's new strategy because we need to tackle it right at, at its root level and we need to tackle as well and i know it's a wider point but it is about tackling misogyny and sexism in our society because that's what breeds that culture that creates a tolerance to violence against women and to abuse you mentioned catcalling there orla it's another day-to-day -day issue that can make women feel very vulnerable and unsafe what have other countries done to tackle it there has been some programs. So, for example, in some countries, they, there, there might be stronger legislation with regard to harassment. But there isn't any. And I mean, I think in all of this area, there's no sort of country you'd point to and say, well, they have it completely right. I mean, there are countries, for example, that have more legislation. For example, Spain would be a country that would have more legislation with regard to domestic violence. Ireland is actually like in terms of our legislation, the legislation that has been brought through in the past number of years would, you know, would put Ireland, you know, quite to the top in terms of the legislation to combat to combat violence against women. But but the culture within Ireland is clearly, I mean, as I said from the FRA survey, the fact that women, you know, fear violence in a greater way than in other uh, European countries is really evidence around the cultural change that's needed. I mean, Ireland is also, um, I think there's about eight countries now that have signed and ratified Istanbul. And again, because we don't have data, it's very hard to make sort of comparisons. Well, how is Ireland doing in comparison to other countries? Because we don't have the data here, so we can't really make those comparative assessments. Are those issues that can be improved by having conversations with young boys in schools and at home about their behaviour around women and how they view women? I think it's it's really good that we're seeing much more of a conversation now about what needs to take place in schools, because we know, you know, there have been many frontline services, you know, the rape crisis centers have developed programs that are, uh, you know, that are done in schools, but they're ad hoc and they're not part an integral part of the curriculum. And that's one of the things that the National Women's Council is calling for in the new strategy. We want to see starting from primary into secondary into third level. You know, a core part of the curriculum should be looking at how we address um, gender based violence, how we can look at issues like consent. How do we create a culture where misogyny and sexism aren't acceptable? Th those types of programs need to be 
you know, as important as the exam subjects. Yes, and these everyday issues were something that was highlighted on the Good Information Project's open newsroom last week by Irish MEP Francis Fitzgerald. So to deal with violence against women, um, you have to think about that as a societal issue. You then have to talk about all of the things that contribute to that. So let's begin with education. You know, it's about making sure that we are, uh, for example, uh, doing sex education properly. I met with some young women from across Europe recently and was actually quite horrified to learn that uh, in any country, sex education is still very, very poor. Um, Maybe we have an idea in Ireland that, you know, maybe in France or Spain or somewhere else, it's, it's, it's much better. It's not. So that's a real issue from the early days in school. It's attitudes to boys and girls when they're in primary school. I think seeing, you know, co-ed uh, primary schools is fantastic to see them working together on environmental issues, respect for one another. It, it begins very basically like that and it begins in the home. And that was MEP Francis Fitzgerald speaking during our open newsroom discussion the other day. You can watch that back in full on our YouTube page. Orla, domestic violence is at the heart of any discussion on women's safety, particularly because any figures we do have on this is just the tip of the iceberg, as reporting incidents of domestic violence can be a very personal, sensitive and complicated task. Just how much did domestic violence incidents increase by during the pandemic? Well, what we, what we know from, um, from some of the statistics that are there from the frontline services is, uh, you know, for example, um, you know, in the Garda statistics, we saw an increase of 17% in, for, in 2019, and the, there was another increase of 10% in 2020. So, the, so we're seeing significant increases year on year. We're also seeing in, um, in 2021, there's, so there's an increase in incidences, and there's also an increase then as well in terms of following that through in, also in terms of convictions. And we are also seeing as well significant increases in terms of the frontline services. So frontline services like um, the Rape Crisis Centre, like Women's Aid. So for example, Women's Aid um, said their figures were up 24% on 2019. So, so that, that's a significant increase. How important are domestic violence shelters in kind of dealing with those reports? And do we have enough? Well, refuge is really important because, you know, for a woman to to actually come forward and, you know, to seek help and to seek support and to seek refuge, she's coming from a really, you know, traumatic and dangerous situation. So it's really important that we have refuge spaces for women, for children, for families. Um, And we know we don't have enough. There are, you know, a number that there are counties with no service and women have to travel. And what is really important in terms of refuge spaces is that the government has signed the Istanbul Convention that I mentioned earlier. And according to that, we should have, because they work it out per head of population, we should have about 498 refuge spaces. And Ireland currently has 144. So we only have about a third of what's recommended. And that's that's just not good enough because they are really critical. Um, and the experience, you know, the experience is that, you know, if, if a woman is at a point of seeking that help and support and needs to leave that really dangerous situation, if that support and safe, you know, safe space is not there for her, then it may be, a, you know, it may be a long time before she then makes that call again. And also her life can be in immediate danger. Now, we know that the government are going to increase the number, but it's really important that we have, an, you know, we have the right number, we have the adequate number, and also that they're near enough for people to be able to travel to. 
What is the Istanbul Accord you mentioned there? Can you explain that to us? So it was agreed by countries across Europe and then countries had to ratify and sign it. And what it is, is so it's a convention that sets out, I suppose it's called the, often called the gold standard. It looks at uh, gender based violence in terms of four pillars. The pillars are about prevention. So how do we prevent uh, gender based violence? It's about protection. How do we protect victims? How do we protect survivors? How do we protect children as well? So, so it's prevention, protection, prosecution. So that's all the things that need to take place in terms of the perpetrator and holding the perpetrator to account. And then the fourth pillar is called policy coordination. How does the government actually, how does governments deliver on this? What's the mechanism to do that? And so, for example, in Ireland, it's been one of the big things that so many organizations have, have been really calling the government out on in that there hasn't been a clear responsibility within government for gender-based violence. So there's been a number of different departments, a number of different agencies, and, and not one minister with a very clear and sole responsibility for it. So it's one of the things that's critical. Um, the government have announced in the last number of weeks where they've said it will now be the Department of Justice, but we still don't know the mechanism and how that will actually work and how the services will come together. And the reason that's so important is that because when a woman reports, what's happening now is she can be sent to a number of different agencies. And those, you know, so we could be talking about the guards. We're also talking about, you know, frontline support services. She could could be going to Tusla. She could be involved with the HSE and no one's talking to each other. So the, so there's no system of wraparound supports and that's what's needed because we know how difficult it is to report. You mentioned coercive control becoming a crime in 2019. Can you tell us briefly about what that is and how, how, how that legislation has worked so far? So coercive control, it's a persistent pattern of controlling coercive and threatening behaviour. It can include all forms of domestic abuse and some forms. And so when I talk about forms of domestic abuse, I'm talking about physical abuse. It could be financial abuse, you know, withholding withholding money from a partner. It can be also making, you know, threatening behavior. And then it can be emotional abuse. And so, you know, evidence around emotional abuse is, you know, very controlling behavior where you're preventing a person, for example, from seeing their friends and family, as is, you know, as, as is often the case in um, domestic abusive relationships. So it can take a number of different forms. And that's it's really important because up to up to that legislation being introduced, domestic violence was very much seen as physical violence. And also for, for, for women in abusive relationships, that that was that was, I suppose, how society saw it. So now that we have this legislation, of course, of control, it's very clear both from a prosecution side, but also in terms of a greater awareness in society about what it means, because for, for many women in an abusive relationship, sometimes that coercion, it can be very manipulative and it can be very hidden and hard to figure out. So creating a greater awareness around, look, these are the elements of coercive control, that that also, I suppose, facilitates a better understanding of what we're talking about. How hard is it to charge or prosecute someone for coercive control? Well, to date, we've only now we've only had three convictions so far for coercive control. Now, that's not unusual in terms of new legislation. So we are seeing an increase and that's important. It's you know, that's really important in terms of the understanding. But what I would say, and I mean, you know, this is the case for every area, I think, in relation to women's equality, that legislation is important. But there's 
but legislation is not the only, you know, it's not the only piece. There's been legislation on the books since the 70s about discrimination against women in the workplace um, with regard to pregnancy, for example. Or, and yet we still see cases with regard to pregnancy um, in terms of discrimination. So it takes a very, you know, a long time for legislation to actually move into a whole cultural change piece. And it's going to take a long time for coercive control to be, you know, to be full, fully understood. So there's a whole piece of work that still needs to be done in terms of the implementation of that, the training that needs to take place within our guards, within our judiciary, with, within the legal system, so that, so that we bring about that type of change that's needed. So is that the type of change we need to really tackle domestic abuse, changing the public attitudes and improving policing? Yeah, I, I think the change needs to happen at a number of different levels. I mean, so, you know, as I said, now that we have coercive control legislation there, that's a start. But that needs to come with. So there needs to be much better training for, for our guards and particularly on Garda Síochána has, you know, a, a new structure in place now. And they have what are called protective services units and they're in every division. And they deal with them with sort of high level cases, serious, complex cases. But training is needed and training takes place for, for you know, those guards who work in those units. But we need fairly intensive training for the guards, the guard who's the call, the first responder, the guard who, you know, who comes to your door when you phone 999. They need to have training in terms of their you know, understanding of domestic abuse, of, of the guard's own domestic abuse policy. Um, and of things like coercive control. So I think training is really important. And also from what we've seen in terms of poor recording of domestic violence incidences, there also needs to be much greater supervision. So, so the, um, the seriousness of domestic violence and the focus on it within our Garda Síochána still needs a lot of work because the experience that women will say to us is, it all depends on the guard who calls to your house. And, and that shouldn't be the case. It should be a standard, a high standard, no matter what guard comes to your door, that he is, you know, he is very clear on, you know, what he can do, if there's arrest that can be made, what evidence he needs to collect. And he also needs to have empathy as well with, with the victim. And that's just in relation to the guards. As I said, there's significant training needed in relation to our judiciary and our legal practitioners with regard to domestic abuse. And I think a really fundamental area that needs to change and probably has got less attention in terms of the conversation about domestic abuse is our family courts. Because women will repeatedly talk about how their lives are put in risk and at danger in relation to judgments and decisions that are made in family courts, particularly with regard to access for children. And we don't have in Ireland a system of you know, a high standard supervised access system, which, you know, it's simply absent. And that needs to also be in the new government strategy, because without that, it is women who are trying to negotiate these really difficult access arrangements. And they're doing it in a context of abuse and control, which is, you know, it's hugely traumatic and difficult. Orla, what broader reform do we need in terms of how the courts handle cases of violence against women? I think we need broader reforms with regard to sentencing guidelines. Uh, so, for example, um, the Supreme Court issued guidelines in, in relation to um, cases of rape, but we don't have guidelines in terms of domestic abuse. And there also needs to be floors for serious offences 
that a suspended sentence is not good enough in a lot of cases. So we need to look at where suspended sentences are being used. And we also need to look at guidelines for different offences, such as for, for offences of sexual assault, for offences in relation to domestic abuse. And I think that that would be one thing that would make a difference because it would also make it, um, it would be more transparent, I think, for, for, for victims who are going to court. And it, it gives, you know, it sets a standard amongst our judges because we know that there are huge variations uh, within the sentences that are given. And that causes huge upset and trauma to victims. But there's also a number of other changes with regard to, to the judiciary that need to be made. I've already mentioned training. The government is going to bring forward the recommendations uh, and is doing so of what was called the, the Tom O'Malley review. So that was a review particularly into rape cases and trials and the victim's experience within that and how to make it more victim centred. So I, I think a really clear thing that needs to take place within the judiciary is how to make the process more victim centred and how to support the victim through the process. And whether that's about providing legal support, psychological support, but we really need to turn this on its head and look at this from the perspective of the victim and, and, and the survivor and what supports do they need. And I mentioned the thing about wraparound supports. And so from a, when, you know, the time from when a woman reports, it should be about those wraparound supports. And that needs to follow her through if the case goes goes to a trial. So training, you know, guidelines for sentences and a switch within the system to make it more victim centred and to look at the needs of victims within um, within trials and within going to court. Are the sentences that are actually being handed down in the courts for violence against women too lenient by international standards? Well, I, I think I think the issue with regard to sentencing is that it, there isn't that standard. So, you know, there isn't a uniformity. So, in you know, it, so they can, you know, they can vary hugely and, and it's the variation of them. So in some cases you would say, yes, that probably is an appropriate sentence. But in, in, in others, you know, you would definitely have other views on that. And in the absence of guidelines, that makes it so unclear, particularly for victims who are going to court. So I, I think that's the key issue here. It's not necessarily about higher or lower, but it's about this whole variation and that it's very much up to, you know, it's 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 within the it's the judge and that the individual judge deciding it. And certainly when you look at things that are happening in um in district courts and in the circuit court, like for example, with regard to breaches of orders, when you're looking at in, in terms of safety or barring orders, huge variation there in terms of how serious those offences are taken. So guidelines are needed at the different levels. And it's it's it, I think it's very it's positive that we have much clearer guidelines now with regard to sentencing in rape cases, but, but, but that needs to filter through so many of the other offences that we're talking about. Finally, Orla, what short-term or immediate steps could be taken to help women in Ireland feel safer? There is no quick fix. I think that's, you know, we know that and there's no one piece. It's a number of pieces in this jigsaw. And that's why it's so important in terms of the Istanbul Convention around, you know, so we need to do things in prevention. We absolutely need to have a core school curriculum that tackles domestic and sexual and gender based violence, but that also tackles the culture that's created in that for misogyny and sexism. So, so the government can do that. We need stronger legislation with regard to harassment. And we are seeing countries implement that um, and, and Ireland needs to do the same. 
and we need to tackle it at its root. So where we were talking about street harassment, where we're talking about catcalling, that, that needs to be seen in the frame because that's all part of the continuum of gender-based violence. And I think, you know, on the prosecution side, yes, we absolutely have a need to have a stronger focus on the perpetrator. And there needs to be, you know, much better training in terms of our judiciary, a much better understanding of these offences and the impact that, that, that they have on victims. So, so, so there is, you know, there is no one piece, but if those pieces were put in place, it would make a significant difference. And I think at the heart of it is those wraparound supports that are needed to victims. Because we know we know how difficult it is to come forward. And if those supports were put in place, it would make that journey, it would make it more likely for a woman to continue through that journey in terms of you know reporting and, and going through the going through the criminal process. That's a very good point about why those wraparound services are important. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Orla. Thank you, Gronya. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and thank you to Orla for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry and my co-host Michelle Hennessy. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme by the European Parliament. The European Parliament has no involvement in nor responsibility for the editorial content published by the project. The next topic for The Good Information Project is to explore Ireland's readiness for the digital future, as everything from employment to education, retail to public services go increasingly online. If you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a one-off or monthly subscriber. You can also leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to help other people find us and to listen to our work. Thank you. Mind yourselves. Salam Thamel.